Hello and welcome to this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. Joining us this week is David O'Sullivan, one of Ireland's top officials in the European Union, who has just been appointed as the EU's new ambassador to Washington. Uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. Uh, David, can you take, take us back a little bit about and tell me about your career to date and how did you, how did you get to become EU ambassador? Well, I'll, I'll spare you all the details. I mean, the, the, the short story is that I, I left university in the mid-70s, uh, went to work in, in the Irish Civil Service in, in the Department of Foreign Affairs, found my way to, to Brussels uh, to the Commission, spent four years uh, in Tokyo working for the European Commission in our, in our delegation there, came back and worked in, in various roles in, in, in Brussels after that, becoming eventually Secretary General of the Commission and, and Director General for Trade. And in my capacity as Director General for Trade, I uh, was working for Cathy Ashton at the time. Then she was appointed as High Representative Vice President to set up the new European Diplomatic Service. So she asked me to move across and help her with that, which is what I've been doing for the last uh, four years. And uh, it's in, in, in that context now that I've taken on the next assignment as uh, EU Ambassador in Washington. And can you give us a scale, a sense of, of the scale of the job, David? I mean, what will be your principal responsibilities as EU ambassador? Well, I mean, of course, we still have 28 member state ambassadors in, in, in Washington. And uh, I'm under no illusions that there is no country, no, no member state that doesn't believe it has a very special relationship uh, with America. Uh, my job will be to uh, provide the, the EU uh, addition to 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 the national diplomacies of our of our member states, particularly in those areas where where we have uh, responsibility. So, for example, trade negotiations, which are the exclusive uh, responsibility of of the European Commission, or in the whole area of cooperation with the United States on international crises, whether it's the Middle East, Iran, uh, or. Um, uh, uh, Ukraine uh, and Russia, where we are working uh, very, very closely in coordinating our positions uh, uh, in response to all these different crises. That's a, a very wide-ranging role by the sounds of it, David. Uh, later this evening, you're giving the IBEC annual lecture in the Shelburne Hotel, and it's, it's called The New Political Landscape in Europe, Business as Usual or New Business Model. What are going to be the key points that you're going to try and tell your audience? Well, I, I think that um, the first thing is to say that we have to – we're in the process of a sort of institutional renewal in, in Brussels, which has been started with the European Parliament elections. Then we will have the choice of the new president of the commission, the new president of the European Council, the new high representative vice president for, for foreign policy. Uh, and clearly, uh, we have to take stock of the European Parliament elections, which uh, have sent a, a very clear message – even if the message perhaps needs a bit of time to be fully deciphered, because I think on one level you can see uh, an increase in uh, parties which are rather critical of Europe. On the other hand, how much of this is really a criticism of the EU uh, and how much of it is a reaction to national contexts and unhappiness with national political situations is something perhaps... Uh, we need more time to tell. But out of all of this, we have to craft uh, a, an agenda for the European Union for the next five years. Uh, and I hope in that context that uh, employment, jobs, growth uh, will be obviously hugely important. 
Uh, but also, uh, I think, the, the, the external dimension of everything that we're doing, particularly trade, which has a huge potential to add uh, to our uh, economic growth and job creation, but also the, the insecurity of the current international situation, which has an impact on business and in which we have a stake, whether it's uh, in the Middle East, uh, whether it's in Eastern Europe with Ukraine and Russia, or even some of the difficulties we're seeing in Asia with uh, China and its neighbors. And David, just to, to pick up on the, the EU-US trade trade agreement negotiations, uh, what do you think, from Europe's perspective, are the key are, are the key issues that have that have to be discussed and have to be agreed upon? Well, what we're looking for is a highly ambitious uh, trade agreement between the the world's two biggest trading partners. We should never forget that the transatlantic economic corridor. Uh, is the single most important economic corridor in the world uh, in terms of uh, uh, trade, investment, uh, and jobs. Uh, it generates 15 million jobs on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and American companies, for example, earn far more from their investments in Ireland or, or, or Belgium than they do from investments in China. So this is the reality of our, the state of our economic relations. We want to uh, dismantle the tariffs, dismantle the barriers to trade, and also promote greater cooperative, uh, regulatory cooperation to try and reduce the costs to business of having to comply with two different sets of regulations on both sides of the Atlantic. Now, this is a very challenging and ambitious agenda, but I believe that uh, with strong political will from both sides, we can make a success of it and uh, uh, greatly increase the economic welfare uh, of the US and the EU. And David, how do you think that this is going to trickle down to Irish business? Do you think it's going to make it easier to, to invest in America? Do you think it's going to encourage more FDI? I think it will promote all kinds of additional economic activity, greater FDI on both sides of the Atlantic, a greater trade, greater opportunities also for small and medium-sized companies, because many of the companies on both sides of the Atlantic uh, who are at the smaller end of the scale find uh, the, the notion of transatlantic trade rather challenging at present, and hopefully greater regulatory convergence and removing some of the barriers which are there will help them also gain the benefits. For Ireland, given the huge importance which exports play in our economic profile, uh, this will be a hugely beneficial agreement. And what do you think, uh, you know, like what level of, on the other side of the fence, in the, on the American side, I mean, how much uh, support do you think that there is for this agreement in the U.S. Congress and elsewhere? Well, we know that the, the, the situation is uh, always a bit complicated uh, with regard to trade matters in the U.S. because of the, the important role that, that Congress plays. I think Congress will be looking closely at what comes out of the deal uh, to make sure that uh, it fits with their interests. But I think there is strong uh, bipartisan support for the principle of the deal. Uh, the issue will, of course, always be the details, and that's precisely what the negotiators are, are working on. And David, financial services, it, it's a big, it's a very important industry in Dublin. Uh, and it's also very important in New York and the US, uh, uh, not to mention London. Uh, I read in the FT there during the week that the issue of uh, financial service regulation may be taken off the table. Is that correct? And uh, is there anything you can do about that? Well, for the moment, we agree to disagree with the American colleagues because we would very much like to include it in the agreement. And for the moment, they're telling us that they don't think this is necessary. Um, some of this is, is a question of public negotiating stance. 
uh, I don't believe that uh, any of these issues uh, will be finalized in the public forum. I think we need to allow the negotiators to, to work and to try to come up with a package uh, which fits both sides of, of, of this discussion, the US and the EU. Uh, I personally think it would be a shame if we didn't include uh, financial regulation because this is an area of, of huge interest. But, you know, there are also issues where we have some questions about whether we wish to engage, for example, audiovisual services. Uh, but in the end of the day, a trade negotiation is about uh, trade-offs. Uh, and uh, let's see what emerges from the, 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 final, the final negotiation. And what do you think the issues will be, David, in terms of agriculture, which is such a, an important industry here in Ireland and uh, America is such an important trading partner? Well, I think there's huge potential for Irish agriculture and particularly for the uh, uh, the Irish agro-food business, which is one of our great strengths. Uh, so I'm absolutely certain that this uh, trade agreement will open up new possibilities uh, for uh, exports from, from Ireland to, to the United States. And the other, the, the, one of the hot media topics, David, certainly is the issue of data retention. And we've got we've had all the Edward Snowden revelations. Where do you think that's going to figure in the talks? Well, this uh, has been very damaging, uh, the, the, the leaks which have taken place. Uh, there has been a, a, a sort of sense of uh, loss of trust uh, in a number of member states, particularly Germany, where this matter has uh, actually played very strongly in, in public opinion with the revelations about the eavesdropping on Chancellor Merkel. Uh, but I believe that we are now engaged in a very constructive discussion with the, the United States authorities on how to provide greater clarity uh, about the way in which uh, data which is transferred will be used. Uh, we believe very strongly that we need to establish uh, the right of redress, legal redress for European citizens in the same way that American citizens have at the present time. And we also need more clarity about uh, some of the ways in which data is used and, and more transparency in the American system. But I believe that if we can get these improvements, then it will be possible uh, to maintain the, the, the existing arrangements for transfer of data. And you think that we can rebuild the trust between the two sides? I mean, some of the, the the revelations of tapping of, you know, Angela Merkel's phone and all that, I mean, it was pretty shocking stuff. It was, but I, th I think uh, President Obama has responded very well uh, in a speech he made earlier this year. Uh, he, he indicated that he too recognized that these revelations uh, would require some changes of practice. We, we would hope, though it's a matter, of course, between the Americans and our member states, that it could be established that the United States would not uh, allow their intelligence agencies to spy on EU institutions or on friendly uh, allies. Uh, so I think, yes, we will find a way through this, even if we have to acknowledge that uh, some, some damage has been done. And David, you know, from Ireland's perspective, you know, we're being attacked on the one side by the Americans and on the other side by our European colleagues over the issue of tax. And we've heard the Apple has been a very hot topic when uh, the, the, the Taoiseach Enda Kenny recently visited uh, California. Do you think that that's something that's going to figure in the talks or do you think that it'll be an issue that you're going to come across in your role as ambassador? I don't think it'll be directly addressed in, in the trade negotiations. Uh, it's clear there is a certain uh, international concern about the fact that uh, large multinational corporations may be able to play one tax jurisdiction off against another in order to uh, significantly reduce their, their tax burden. Uh, and some of this is probably legitimate. Some of it may, 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 may be less legitimate. Uh, there's work going on in the OECD on this issue. And it is true that uh, under the state aid rules, uh, the Commission is, wants to have a look at uh, some of the uh, activities happening here 
in, in, in Ireland. But I, I think the important thing is that, for example, on the issue of the state aid rules, Ireland benefits hugely from the fact that the Commission polices the extent to which governments can provide subsidies to, to industry. Uh, 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 and if the larger member states and the wealthier member states were able to subsidize their industry, it would be a huge disadvantage for us. So I don't think we can then cry foul if uh, occasionally people say, well, we think there are some things in Ireland that might need looking at. I'm not prejudging what they will find because all they have done is launch an investigation. There is not yet a conclusion. But I think we have to understand that uh, having strict policing of uh, uh, unfair subsidies to industry is very much in Ireland's interest. And David, you know, you've, you've, you've been at the heart of the European Commission during the financial crisis uh, and you've seen Ireland, you know, we've, we, we've, we've had to receive a bailout. Uh, how do you think that, you know, Ireland is now viewed uh, in Europe, uh, you know, post bailout? Do you think, the, like, are we getting anywhere towards doing, doing some sort of a bank debt deal or restructuring? Well, I, I think Ireland uh, has been given a lot of credit for the way in which we have grasped the challenge of this crisis uh, and how the government has managed to exit the bailout uh, and meet the targets. Uh, and I think people do acknowledge that Ireland has taken some, some difficult and painful decisions. And we, we know that this has caused uh, pain uh, and uh, unhappiness uh, uh, in, in many quarters of, of the population. Uh, I think... Uh, the important thing is to stay the course. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the fact that we've exited the program does not mean that the crisis, it means that the worst of the crisis is over, but another crisis could be around the corner. And I think we still need to maintain uh, the commitment to uh, balancing uh, the finances and to more sustainable public finances. Uh, and this will uh, require some, some further tough decisions. Uh, whether this will lead in due course to uh, some alleviation of the bank debt, I think Ireland has a very good case. Uh, uh, I noted that the European Commission, for example, strongly supports the Irish case. But uh, this is going to take some quiet diplomacy and a bit of patience uh, before it, it yields results. Uh, but I think the government is doing a good job of making the case. Uh, uh, and just as they were able to find solutions with the famous uh, promissory note, uh, I, I would hope that uh, by continuing the policies, by demonstrating Ireland's commitment to uh, more sustainable public finances, that in, in due course a solution will be found. And how do you think our, our Taoiseach Ken Kenny is viewed in Europe? Uh, I mean, he seems to be tipped uh, quite often for very, 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 very big jobs out there. Indeed, I think he's highly respected and I think he would be an extremely credible candidate for uh, either of the two jobs uh, uh, with which I've seen his name associated. If I understand correctly, he himself doesn't consider himself a candidate, so maybe you need to ask him the question. Uh, but I think he's acknowledged as uh, the Taoiseach uh, uh, who has presided over a government that has done extremely well. Uh, and I think this is something uh, in which the country can take great pride. And uh, the former Taoiseach, uh, John Bruton, previously held your position, David. I mean, have you been in touch with him at all to get some tips about the new job or spoken to him about it? We have exchanged some emails. I know John very well. He did a fantastic job in Washington. It's really a very hard act to follow, to be honest with you. And a number of people have said, oh, you know, you're an Irishman like John Bruton. Well, he's a former Taoiseach. He's a very experienced politician. Uh, I come from a slightly different mould. Uh, uh, we're seeing each other uh, in Brussels, I think, in, in the next week or two, and I will certainly be, be seeking his advice. And just finally, David, um, you know, you're in the job for four years. If we were doing this interview in four years' time, uh, what are the key things you'd hope to have achieved? 
Well, I would hope that uh, I'll be able to look back at the successful conclusion of the trade negotiations. Of course, I'm not the, I'm not the lead negotiator. Uh, uh, that will fall to other people, but I will do all I can to, to facilitate that and also to try to make sure that we, we get the support in Congress that this will need when the, de when the deal is done. I would hope to have strengthened our relations more generally with the United States, particularly in the area of, of foreign policy, uh, crisis management and, and security. And just generally left uh, the state of uh, EU-US relations in a slightly better state than, than, than I found them when I arrived. David O'Sullivan, the EU's new ambassador to Washington. Thanks for coming on the program and uh, best of luck with the new role. Thank you very much indeed. And in the second part of this week's show, we're joined by Pamela Newhanam of the Irish Times. Uh, Pamela, you met up with the billionaire entrepreneur and former jailbird Marta Stewart recently. Uh, how, how exactly did, did that come about? We were both at the EY World Entrepreneur of the Year competition in Monte Carlo. She was speaking at the competition and I was reporting on it. There had been 10,000 entrepreneurs from all over the world had entered this competition from 50 different countries and the winner of each country went to Monaco then for the finale of the competition. And who, who else did you bump into when you were down there at the EY Entrepreneur of the Year Awards? There were very good speakers from different countries. Alex Ferguson, the former Man United chairman, he was there speaking. So as uh, the European Ryder Cup captain Paul McGinley and Nobel Peace Prize winner Mohamed Yunus. And who, who, who down there do you think was the most impressive entrepreneur uh, of all of the people you saw or heard speak? I was really impressed with Mohamed Yunus because he had started off as a professor in a university and he was lecturing in Bangladesh. And he went out into the streets one day to see if he could help people. And he discovered that no poor people were able to get loans from banks because they didn't think they were credit worthy. So they could only get loans from kind of sharks effectively and they were being charged really high interest rates. So he decided to lend them his own money and hardly charge any interest. And out of that grew this huge bank. And the average kind of size of the loan of the bank was $30 and they were lending to the hundreds of thousands of poor people. And now he's got that bank in numerous countries, including Scotland, the United States. And its main area is just small micro loans to people who couldn't get loans anywhere else. And you also met uh, Martha Stewart. Uh, what was she like when you met her? Like, what type of person is she? I thought she was really likeable and friendly and very funny and down to earth. And it was kind of nearly surreal. I was standing in this room. It was a very fancy suite of the Hotel de Paris in Monte Carlo. And all I had noticed was that there was those very expensive La Prairie products in the bathroom and that a lovely dining room and a humongous walk-in wardrobe. But she was uh, more interested in the view and the fact that the flowers on the flower bed below were in the shape of EY. She was very excited by that and snapping away. And I thought she was very funny as well. I, At one stage during our interview, I asked her what the highlight of her career was and she burst out laughing and said, visiting Waterford, of course. <laughs> and what was she doing there? So she said she'd been to Ireland several times. She'd done a helicopter trip throughout Ireland, landing in remote spots. She'd been to the Burren. She'd been to the Galway races. She'd been over to the Aran Islands and wears her sweaters a lot. And she'd also um, filmed some stuff in the Waterford Crystal factory so she was saying she was very disappointed when that closed down because she'd seen a lot of great talent there and she was kind of saddened that they would all be lost their jobs. And Pamela, she also told you about her some of her, her dating activities with a, a rather famous actor. 
Well, not quite, but she did have uh, some dating activities with the the Oscar winner Anthony Hopkins around 10 years ago and she watched Silence of the Lambs at the time and she had to break up with him following that because she couldn't separate him from his character Hannibal Lecter. (laughs) That must have been a challenge all right and uh, you know what did you think of her as as a businesswoman and as an entrepreneur? I think she's a really good businesswoman and she you know started working at the age of 10. She was babysitting neighbourhood kids in her neighborhood and then she started organizing kids birthday parties so she was an entrepreneur from a very young age she then became a model and starred in lots of tv campaigns for companies such as clairol and that paid her way through college and after college she decided to become a stockbroker and she was a stockbroker for seven years and even during one year this was in the late 60s early 70s she earned 135,000 in one year which back then would have been an absolute fortune so she obviously had a very good talent for stockbroking and then when the, there was a big stock market crash in 1973-1974 she decided to go out on her own then and set up a catering business and from that catering business she's built up this multi-million dollar empire and she floated her company on the New York Stock Exchange in 1999 and became the first self-made billionaire woman. And what does she think of entrepreneurs or did she give any uh, views on, on business or what she thinks of business people? She thinks entrepreneurs are all rebels in one way or another and she even said herself that she is a bit of a rebel and back in the 90s she had a very big association with Time Warner and she decided to end that association because they didn't see her vision on media tie-ins. She had a very famous magazine at the time and she wanted to have a TV program to accompany the magazine and they said that that would cannibalize the magazine and it would be a disaster. So she bought back her company from them and went out on her own. And what does she think about brands or labels? Did she give any sense of that? Like like she's, she herself is a bit of a brand. She is a brand and she says that she would actually like her brand to live on a lot longer after she passes away. She was kind of saying that Estee Lauder is a bigger brand now than when Estee Lauder was alive and she would ultimately like the Martha Stewart brand to be like that too. But she has a thing about certain labels and she was talking to me about her good friend Christian Louboutin who is the very famous French shoe designer and he had given her some Louboutin pairs of shoes but she didn't like the red on the sole of the shoes so she got a black marker and she coloured the soles of the shoes black and following that she was on his boat with him on a trip in Finland and he saw what she had done to his lovely shoes and he wasn't too impressed with that but she said she is definitely not a slave to fashion. And um, you know Martha is a great business success story but uh, it hasn't all been easy for her I mean she did spend some time in prison Uh, how did that come about Pamela and what did she have to say about it? So she had a lot of shares in a company called Imclone Systems and she had received a tip off from her stockbroker that the CEO of Imclone Systems was going to sell a lot or all of his stock. So she decided that she was going to sell a lot of her stock and she sold 4,000 shares in one day. And uh, the CEO had also tried to sell all his stock and tried to sell all his daughter's stock as well. And as a result of that, Um, the Securities and Exchange Commission America decided to do a bit of an investigation into it and she was ultimately convicted of conspiracy and um, giving false uh, statements to federal investigators and she was sentenced to five months in jail in 2004 but she always maintained her innocence and said, you know, it wasn't insider trading 
And how did she react? Or like, did you ask her about this particular issue? So I did. It had been a little bit of an elephant in the room throughout the interview. And she had kind of touched on it briefly. At one stage, she'd said that, you know, the company was rebuilding itself at the moment. And, you know, it was in a transition phase and that the company's problems stemmed from her personal legal problems. And while they lost no customers when everything happened, they did lose ground in terms of partnerships. So I kind of broached it again at the end of the interview. And that's when she told me, you know, that it wasn't insider trading. But uh, we didn't get much further than that because the interview was brought to an abrupt halt. And I was told uh, that it was over and she was leaving. And I kind of tried to talk a bit further then just because they were telling me I'd ruined the whole interview and it had ended on a sour note. So I kind of started asking her about Ireland and what she thinks about American companies locating here for tax reasons. And she said she thought that was very smart. Well, it sounds like an absolutely fascinating interview, Pamela, which is in this Friday's Irish Times and also on irishtimes.com. Plenty of twists and and turns and dramatic moments. Uh, Thanks for coming on the programme this week. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's Inside Business and Technology podcast. I'm Tom Lyons. The show was produced by Sinead O'Shea and sound engineer was James Davis. 